You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. And of course, people who've been listening to the previous episodes may now wonder, where's Dan? <laughs> It's true. And, and I think my timing might be off, but he is somewhere in the middle of Texas right now. Uh, it's day two of his road trip relocating from sunny Florida to the land of barbecue and bull fights, I want to say. <laughs> I'd, uh, I, I have a lot of love for Texas, but I couldn't tell you I'm a native familiar with it or anything like that. But yes, Dan is relocating to San Antonio and uh, we wish him all the best. Sad we can't help him with the move, but happy to be holding up the fort here without him. Do you think he will come by next week and have a Texan accent adopted? <laughs> <laughs> Look, if he doesn't show up with one of those big 10-gallon hats, I'm going to yeah. be really disappointed. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> In case, dear listeners out there, you haven't noticed, my voice should sound really good now because I have actually got a new microphone and I wanted to briefly thank someone on this show on air, even though I won't name the person, but I've received a very sudden, unexpected gift with no uh, particular reason. I mean, I ha my birthday is next week, but it was not really connected to that. And I'm just tremendously grateful to have received this beautiful new microphone, especially in times where it's not only podcasting every week, but where it's also lots of online teaching, uh, meetings, Oh man, I've got I've been in in lectures where people have just used, you know, the integrated laptop mic and then ideally <laughs> the, the touchpad on the, on that laptop as well, you know, at the same oh time and you're just like clicking sounds all the time. It can drive you quite quite crazy if you listen to that for like 90 minutes. I wonder um, maybe you've noticed this stuff on given how often you look at audio equipment, but have the prices of nice microphones risen at all during the pandemic? I would have to imagine that they would have been in more demand for that exact reason. Not that I have noticed. I think if prices have risen, then probably more in the low to mid-range spectrum, because that's usually what people would get, right? Uh, when mm -hmm. it comes to cameras and also microphones. Usually when you are, like my co the colleagues in my department here at the Institute of Media Studies, um, I think almost all of them have purchased some kind of low to mid-range microphones and webcams. But this, what, what I'm talking into right now here is a Shure SM7B, which is kind of the golden standard of vocal recording microphones. And I think this was this is a little bit too much when it comes to, you know, just doing just doing <laughs> online lectures. It's true. So for the next few weeks, Dan and I will sound like we're speaking into tin cans, despite the fact that we both recently upgraded our microphones. And then hopefully at some point <laughs> in the near future, we too will be able to upgrade to the gold standard of microphones. <laughs> If you want to help us out there, dear listeners, then you can definitely do that. Because as you know, we at With a Terrible Fate strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that is why this show is free, it is independent, there are no advertisements, there is no paywall, and instead we rely entirely on your support. For example, to keep server expenses going, to upgrade equipment so we can sound even better in your ear. And if you wish to help us in that endeavor, then you can contribute and go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. Today we're going to talk about glitches. 
this is a topic that I've been thinking about ever since I played Assassin's Creed Valhalla <laughs> for, <laughs> for apparent reasons. I mean, uh, there was a sequence in Assassin's Creed Valhalla that really got me thinking. Uh, you know, the game starts in Norway where you play this elaborate intro sequence as is typical for the recent Assassin's Creed games. And I've, I received a quest in which I had to go to a specific point and raid, like, raid a village or something. I don't remember the details anymore. And for that quest, an NPC joined me. Sigurd. Sigurd joined me. And uh, the presumption of the game was that I would obviously directly go to that place and do that quest. But there's really not a, no incentive to necessarily do that. You can also do lots of side quests, lots of exploration. And so I did that. And I, <laughs> at first I thought it would stop at a certain point. But Sigurd, this burly Viking, he kept following me around. He kept following me around <laughs> everywhere. And he caused all kinds of glitches that were just genuinely interesting like he would be there in every cutscene he would be there I, when i speak to a character he just stands by looking grim in his default stance you know that characters have in video games and he would just stand there and glare off into the distance without his existence being acknowledged at all <laughs> it's so funny um I played it so long ago that I'm not going to be able to remember the details, but I remember something very similar happening to me in Skyrim where either there was an NPC who followed me longer than she was supposed to, or maybe even the guards in Whiterun followed me out of Whiterun and chased me the entire game or something. But it's, uh, we'll get more into the meaning and how to interpret glitches, but especially you know following up on our conversation about NPCs from last week with Dan, it's so funny to think that sometimes glitches kind of give NPCs a, a mind or life of their own in these games <laughs> yes absolutely especially in in these simulation based games i feel you know skyrim assassin's creed those are all huge simulation based open world games where such a weird thing occurs like i've while sigurd was still following me around with his heavy boots in the snow i got a quest where i had to lead a pack of wolves to an npc in order for that npc to kill the wolves to gain reputation as a viking and uh, Sigurd just, I, I wanted to draw the wolves while Sigurd ran in there like, <laughs> seeing the wolves <laughs> as enemies, you know, just fighting, slaughtering them all. And I'm like, Sigurd, what are you doing? <laughs> this, man, this was just such a treat. It was more enjoyable than playing the game in the way that it was intended, I feel. Oh, man, I feel like we're going to have to send Ubisoft like a fruit basket or something between you saying last week how you gave up on the game and now talking about how glitchy it is. <laughs> this is going to become the uh, podcast of With a Terrible Fate and Stefan's Vendetta against Assassin's Creed and Ubisoft. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I, I mean, I have. I'm very affectionate towards glitches. I can appreciate them. I, even from, like, we're going to talk about the more uh, media studies, the theoretically framed perspective in a moment, but I just find glitches genuinely funny. I remember that, you know, in uh, silly walks to me are an absolute kicker. They are just so funny when you have this these memes of uh, characters in uh, Mass Effect Andromeda who they would wobble down the stairs or in The Witcher 3, I found a character once who was carrying a crate and he was like walking backwards, slightly hovering above the ground. It was just so genuinely funny. I love these silly walk glitches. They are my favorite, I think. 
I think one of my favorite glitches from my deep past in video games was not especially funny, but uh, kind of an artifact now of a bygone era in video games in many ways. So the first Japanese role-playing game or JRPG that I ever played was this game Tales of Symphonia, which is one of those games, I don't know if you have any of these, Stefan, but like I love it so much and it was so formative to me that I almost have trouble writing about it. Like I've never written an analysis of it because it's just such a like a part of my childhood <laughs> growing up. Uh, but this was also in the era of, you know, like, text file game walkthroughs on gamefaqs.com where you would have a few windows open with guides and strategies to get through every part of the game, or at least that's how I did it. And uh, in Tales of Symphonia, it's one of those games where your characters have two different skill trees so they can learn different combat abilities and you, you basically have to choose one or the other and you get these you know great ultimate abilities depending on which paths you choose. But there was a way in the game, which I think you would call a glitch, uh, to basically make it so that you could get the ultimate skills from both different skill trees for your characters and make them basically even more powerful than was intended by the game. So that that was a, a good one growing up to really think about pushing the limits of my characters and, and frankly have a way to put even more hours of play into a game that I couldn't play enough times. That also gives you a kind of gameplay advantage, right? Absolutely, yep. Oh, that's really interesting. That is really interesting because I was, I've been thinking about what glitches actually are. And I think at first sight, I would say glitches are, they are artifacts. They are uh, disruptive. They are somehow caused by technical problems or complications in the game's code without, without us having to open the black box here, obviously, but something's yeah. happening within that black box that produces something disruptive, right? And it's interesting because, you know, the word glitch, I think just by virtue of how we use it in, you know, the modern world is oftentimes primarily associated with technologies like video games or computer programs. But as I was thinking about this and getting ready for this podcast, I think especially if you're thinking about games as a mode of storytelling, there are similar glitches that you can think about in other storytelling media, right? You can think about something like a typo in a novel or if a film reel gets damaged and so you see, um, not lens glare because that would be a recording problem, but but problems with the actual you know production or showing of a movie in a movie theater, right? We don't think of these as glitches by that name, but I think in terms of the function that they serve and how they draw an audience's attention away from the story and, and more to the act of having created the story and some failure in that act, I think they're just as much glitches as silly walks or, or something like that in a game, right? It's interesting too because you talk about... Um, the different things that glitches can be. Glitches can also be really funny, right? Uh, even beyond something like a silly walk. Uh, and I, I have to quickly tell this story because it sets up what we'll be talking about later. And it's also a story that I know you haven't heard, Stefan, and it is the funniest glitch that I have ever experienced. And I would not have believed it happened. Yeah, I, I would. It's something actually, it's it's a good call to Dan, our, our fellow podcaster who's not here, because he was the one who actually experienced this glitch. And I swear to you, I would not have believed it happened if I were not watching <laughs> him play the game at the time. So this was back, uh, I think in 2018, it was right whenever Sekiro came out, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice uh, by the madman auteur Hidetaka Miyazaki, the creator of Dark Souls and Bloodborne. Um, 
and, and many others. Uh, and we were playing through that. And for listeners who don't know, Dan and I have much love for the Dark Souls series, and we've played through every Dark Souls game and also Bloodborne together cooperatively. And so when Sekiro came out uh, and we realized that it didn't have multiplayer functionality, we were really disappointed and we decided, okay, well, the way we'll be able to still play this together is we'll basically stream it to each other so we can watch each other play it. And so uh, one night I was watching Dan stream it, and this was as we were nearing the end of the game for the very first time, right? So we were discovering all of this content for the first time ourselves, and earlier that night, before I had watched Dan play this, I had encountered what I think many people would call the hardest boss in the game. It's one of those classic optional endgame bosses that to many is more difficult than the proper final boss, right? This one, in typical Miyazaki fashion, is called the Demon of Hatred. Uh, and without spoiling too much of the game, it's it's just an amazing boss, and I hope to write about it at some point because you know you have this NPC whom you meet at the very beginning of the game called the Sculptor, who's basically kind of uh, an augur of what your avatar's fate might ultimately become. He's someone who fought a lot earlier in his life and has basically resigned himself to living in a hut in isolation and carving Buddha statues, right? But he alludes to how he has all of this hatred living inside of him and these violent tendencies that he basically has to keep in check by carving these Buddhas, right? Well, fast forward to the end of the game, foreshadowing is a great narrative device. Uh, as all hell breaks loose, so too does his violent hatred, and he turns into this just monstrous demon wreaking havoc on the world. And you don't have to find him, you don't have to fight him, but if you do, it is one of the most challenging fights you can ever encounter. Uh, I, I really didn't know if I would be able to beat it. I ultimately did, after many, many attempts, many failures, uh, and, you know, I, I felt a lot of pride for having beaten it. So <laughs> set, set the stage that way, right? Later that night, I'm watching Dan play through the game and he gets to the same boss, the Demon of Hatred. Uh, and you can look it up online, but to paint you a picture with my words, the, the fight with the Demon of Hatred takes place in this big, mostly empty battlefield, right? A large kind of arena style fight. And there are a few like wooden watchtowers sprinkled across the field, right? Which are meant really just to be destructible um, obstacles that you can use to get between you and the demon of hatred to avoid some of its attacks and it'll destroy these watchtowers over time, right? So I watched Dan go into this fight and instead of going right up to battle the demon of hatred, he runs over to one of these towers and I just watch him start jumping to try to reach the top of the tower. And this is not an object in the game you're supposed to be able to jump to the top of, all right? Uh, he later explained to me that he was doing this because in an earlier battle in, in the game, it's actually built into the game that you can reach this high vantage point in the boss arena and get an early hit on the boss uh, in a way that is not obvious. So he was trying to figure out a way to do that with the Demon of Hatred. After maybe three minutes of him jumping and trying to get to the top, of this tower, he ends up being able to actually get on top of it. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the demon of hatred this whole time was on the other side of the battlefield. And when Dan manages to do this, the demon of hatred, and I kid you not, because you will not believe this, Stefan, he just turns around and walks off the cliff at the edge of the battlefield <laughs> and dies. And that's the end of the fight. And I, I literally called Dan up right then. 
I was like, I can't believe this. I'm, I am now the demon of hatred at you because I'm so <laughs> upset that you were able to do that. Um, it, it will be important to Dan that I tell listeners he later did go back and fight the demon of hatred properly and kill it. So he does have the ability to do so. But oh my goodness, that, that will always take the cake for me in terms of just ridiculous glitches in video games that make for a great story in themselves. Yeah, and I think that is amazing because it has... It has all the makings of a good glitch. It's something like an unexpected behavior. The player behaves in unexpected ways, like me not going directly to the quest objective in Assassin's Creed, Dan jumping up that tower even though he was not supposed to, and by virtue of doing that, rewiring certain aspects of the game, making the game somehow, yeah, well, glitch. And this is also something that happens a lot or is intentionally triggered in speedruns, right? When you would yeah. have to play a speedrun of uh, Sekiro and you'd have to do a speedrun where you finish off all the bosses, then I assume this would be a glitch that you'd want to use because you, sp you save a lot of time in the process. That's a really great point. You know, I hadn't even thought about how this might relate to speedruns because oftentimes when we think about glitches, uh, at least for me, the colloquial term glitch calls to mind those errors in video games that prevent you from making progress, right? But you're totally right. In the wonderful ecosystem that is speedrunning a game, people actively seek out glitches or what you might think of as glitches, like aberrations in the game that allow you to do things that were not intended by design in order to actually get through the game even faster. That's, that's really fascinating. It is a form of subversive play, I would say, where you play against the well, rules or where you use the rules to your advantage in a way that was not expected by the by the developers. And at the same time, it is something I would say that in with the most common forms of glitches, it is something that disrupts the what not necessarily the flow, but maybe the the immersion in the game. The idea that you are um that you are involved in this world, that this is a kind of diegetically consistent world in which you move about, such as when you glitch through a wall or fall through the floor, which would probably be the most common types of, you know, let's say ordinary glitches. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that more for a second, right? So I, I don't know if we've mentioned it on this new form of our podcast, but actually on the previous like version 0.1 of our podcast, we had a whole episode where I had to explain to listeners why I hate the word immersion so much. And I think we did talk about buzzwords before, uh, just yeah. in terms of them uh, being hard to get analytically precise about, right? So when you talk about a game being immersive and glitches breaking immersion in terms of your involvement in the game, right? What do you mean by immersion? And I think it's it's an interesting question, not only because of what we'll be talking about later, which will grasp onto this topic of immersiveness more in the podcast, but also even in terms of what we were just talking about with speedruns, right? That's an interesting case for teasing out immersiveness because you might think that in some ways, at least, speedrunners are super, super engaged and involved in the games where they're actively trying to find and exploit glitches, right? So, so what are you thinking about when you call to mind immersiveness? First of all, I, I definitely agree that immersion is a vague term. It's a term that has been, that many game study scholars try to define for a long time. And thus far, there are no, I would say, properly convincing attempts to do so. But when I use it in this case, I use it especially in distinction from uh, flow and from involvement. Because, you know, for me, as, when you do a speedrun, then you can be very much involved in the game, as in you look at the mechanics, you try to optimize, whereas immersion to me has more the connotation 
of being cognitively and emotionally um I I'm trying to find another word than immersed here because it's very circular <laughs> reasoning. But, uh, but to be in that story, to suspend mm. your disbelief that this is something artificially created, but where you feel like what the character's experience is, you take it as face at face value. You don't think about whether it's real or not. You don't think about how has this been made or how can I take advantage of it, but you just let yourself fall. It's a something that's often... Um, it's often compared to the feeling of being submerged, right? It's a more passive mm. kind of thing. Well, cognitively and emotionally active, but not so much paying attention to the actual um, aspect of play and winning the game. I think that idea of comparing it to being submerged and, and perhaps thinking of a fish in water is a good starting point for a conversation like this because uh, I think there's something similar going on in terms of thinking about the story without thinking about the creative aspects that brought it into being, right? And, and I think that is a good point of distinction from what's going on with speedrunners, because even if speedrunners are really engaged in what they're doing, I, I think you're right. And uh, one of the other analysts on the site, Matt McGill, actually talked a while ago to some some major speedrunners about the psychology that they put into speedrunning. And you're right, it is almost more like an act of manipulating tools with a certain end in mind such that even if the games as they often do the speedrunners are playing have rich and interesting stories the speedrunners are not usually thinking about those stories as they're going through the speedrunning of it right so uh, attention to the story as uh not being immersed in the story but thinking about the story as something that is actively happening rather than something that, as you said, is is artificial and an artifact that you are, you know, either looking at as an artifact or engaging with as a tool. I think I think that's a good starting point for thinking about immersiveness. Yeah, it is also the strive of video games to um, to strive for immediacy, which is part of a concept by uh, J. David Bolter and by Richard Grusin. They wrote this really neat little book, Remediation, Understanding New Media. It was published in 1999. And they have this, um, this dialectical concept between immediacy and hypermediacy. Immediacy, in this case, means that video games... They don't talk specifically about video games, by the way. I'm doing that transfer here now. But video games strive to um, reduce the barriers as much as possible. For example, they get rid of your HUD overlay. They get rid of an of an health of a health bar so that you do not have to recognize the fact that you're currently playing a video game. They want to get you as closely as possible in touch with with what is happening on the screen without making you being aware of the screen. So that would be the idea of immediacy. Um, realism and so on is also part of that or the strive for photorealism, whereas on the other hand, you have hypermediacy, which means especially pointing out that something is an artificial thing, something that is a technological artifact, yeah, such as if you, if you have like um, uh, a metaleptical reference where an avatar or character refers to themselves as a character or an avatar, or where you have to, there are certain instances of games where you have to leave the game and fumble around in the code, or even such things like um, making you go to the menu, making it feel just like video gamey. Having numbers 
when you, you attack an enemy and a damage number pops up over their head. That clearly reminds you that you are playing a video game right now. And these both of these concepts can be present at the same time. And for me, glitches happen somewhere in between where there is a world that tries to be as immediate as it possibly can be. That's only, only then are glitches really funny because there are lots of games that intentionally work with glitches or that really don't care that much. Then it's not that exceptional. But when you have a game like Assassin's Creed, we've spoken about that before, Sekiro, uh, games where the attempt is to make it, well, I'm going to say immersive or immediate, in quotation marks, and then this hypermediate artifact occurs where you just become instantly aware this is a video game that I'm playing and it is faulty. And I think this is, this is to me a perspective, an angle that I can take on glitches. Stefan, I want to ask you, now that you've introduced this, this framework of immediacy and hypermediacy, and before we move on to glitches in more depth, do you personally or as a game scholar feel as though either immediacy or hypermediacy is better than the other in terms of storytelling or video games? No, I don't think there is a way to say one is better than the other. I think it depends on what you want to do. But I think the concept helps us in understanding why such a thing happens. Like the Quantic Dream games, um, Heavy Rain, uh, Beyond Two mm. Souls, Detroit Become Human. Um, these games are designed in such a way that you ha have no interface and that you have mostly like, you know, cinematic uh, camera angles. The reason for all of this is that they want to lower this barrier. They want to make it impalpable to you that you're actually playing a video game. So I think if you if that's the direction that, that a developer studio wants to go, then immediacy is the way to go. But if you want to do something like that is 8-bit aesthetics, you know, and such things that refer to video games themselves, retro, uh, retro games and retro style aesthetics, I think uh, that is a very hypermediate uh, stylization that can play into the narrative. And so I think there's no way to say one is better than the other. It always depends on the specific game. I think that's a really, really great point. And it's one that's worth keeping in mind as we go further into glitches, because as we were just talking about in the introduction about glitches, right, we think about glitches oftentimes with this negative connotation. I don't think that needs to be the case. Oftentimes glitches can be some of the most interesting aspects of games. And as we'll talk about shortly, uh, even some things that we don't think of as glitches can be some of the most valuable modes of engagement that we have with games. Uh, maybe something for a future episode. I mean, part of why I think about this immediacy, hypermediacy distinction and worry a lot about the, the valences that people associate with them in terms of them being good and bad is, um, you know, I, I think in some ways there's a trend in modern gaming to focus on making things just really immediate uh, and totally removing any sense of interface or separateness. Uh, we haven't talked about my own theories on player avatar interactions as such yet on the podcast, but I actually think the sense in which the player occupies a distinct role from the avatar is a key part of how video game fictions work. And some of the most interesting video game stories, in my opinion, actually avail themselves of that in a way that really doesn't exist if you just focus on making it as easy as possible for the player to imagine that she's the avatar. But you're right, in terms of design notes, I mean, just having these terms in mind is a really great way of parsing out these two levels of, of what's going on in a video game and how we can think about the craft versus the story. I would totally agree with you that glitches are a problem 
if you are, if you imagine you're a developer studio and you try to create something that is immediate here in the sense of the concept by Bolton and Grusin, and you display your video game on the E3 show floor, an important journalist comes by and plays that game and then glitches through the floor. That's bad, you know. That's bad news. <laughs> but but when it is something like uh, you can even you can um, that you can use glitches to your advantage. Um, there are games that are popular because of their glitches, and there are games that also intentionally use glitches. Right? I was thinking of something like uh, Max Payne Three, which is one of my favorite examples to use in that context. That uses blurry visuals and such things. Um, as long as it's yeah. under the control of the of the let's say authors or the developers, um, then they can very effectively use it to emphasize the themes of the game, which in this case would be trauma, uh, PTSD, uh, drug addiction, such things. It's interesting too because I, I think that example highlights what a rich taxonomy there is of things that we think about uh, when we when we talk about glitches, right, in a way that might not be immediately obvious. For example, in terms of glitches as something that was not intended by the creator of a game, right, that can be something that is either uh, like totally game-breaking, right, uh, or something that is neutral to the game or, or even positive as some of the examples we've already talk talked about. Um, in terms of game breaking, this might too now be an artifact from gaming's past because especially with the advent of digital gaming, uh, it hasn't really happened to me as much. But oh my goodness, I remember oftentimes in the like PlayStation, GameCube generations of gaming, uh, sometimes you would put a disc in and you know if you were renting the disc or if you just got a bad used copy, there would oftentimes be cases for me when a game would simply stop working and freeze up at a certain scene, right? Like shortly after leaving Midgar in the original Final Fantasy VII on my first copy of that game, I would just always freeze at this one point. And so I had to get a whole new copy um, and games would literally be unplayable in that sense, right? Uh, but as we've just talked about, you know, a lot of unintended glitches can be uh, much more... Um, at least neutral to the progress of the game than that, right? And then on the other taxonomy branch, like you were just talking about with Max Payne, uh, and like many people might be familiar uh, with Undertale in this regard, right? There are things that emulate the experience of glitches, but are deeply different than glitches as such because they actually were intended by the creators of the game and are part of the narrative that they want to tell, right? So it's a, it's this interesting, not paradox, but just relationship of using something that is supposed to be understood as an unattended consequence of the medium to actually tell a story in that medium. Like you get with a lot of postmodern work in, in any media, right? Yeah. Again, you, you might think of it as video game specific, but think about like Luigi Pirandello's plays, six characters in search of an author or something like Ulysses by James Joyce, right? I mean, there are a lot of media that play with our expectations of how a media represents content. Yeah, that's just postmodernism for you there. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I think that in the era of digital game distribution, it is a lot easier to fix glitches. Uh, as you just mentioned, it's like in the PlayStation 1, GameCube era, uh, era it, that was a time where if you had a glitch, the missing no glitch in Pokemon, infamous glitch, we can do an entire episode on that, um, it's something like an exploit where you can get a Pokemon that you would not conventionally be able to obtain and that was not not intended to be in the game. 
and uh, this is something that then cannot be fixed because it's it's on the physical cartridge whereas nowadays you'd put out a patch and you have to if you want to actually make use of glitches go a step further such as uh, pt did which is the playable teaser to a silent hill game um, directed by uh, Hideo Kojima that never saw the light of day, but this teaser was online, and there is a segment in that short teaser, which can now not be played anymore again, <laughs> but there is a segment roughly in the middle where the game pretends to be crashing, uh, glitching and crashing, and I think um, that is also a wonderful example of how immediacy and hypermediacy work, because that game is friggin' scary. And the, the interesting thing about it is that by by using these this glitch aesthetic, by making you believe that for a second the game has crashed, it can actually involve you, it can actually draw you further in, because it feels somehow as if the game was protruding that that distinction between you and the and the fictional world. All of a sudden it is very real, because a glitch is real, right? It's not just part of the fictional world, it's real. PT is such a good example of so many things too. I mean, we'll definitely have to do at least one podcast episode on just horror storytelling and games in the future, but between its use of glitches and the fact that it's just this trailer for a game that never existed, it's it's my favorite example to point to of like like folklore or like campfire stories or living creepypastas in video games, right? It's just this weird anomaly that is so hard to classify because it's in many ways like a truly unique experience. Here we are talking about it as a, a canonical example of how glitch storytelling happens, right? Uh, and yet it was just this one random blip in the video game storytelling landscape uh, that never saw the fruition that many people felt it deserved. I think I want to tee it up, if it's okay with you, Stefan, with talking a little bit more about authorial intention, right? So we, we've talked, yeah, we've, we've talked a little bit about this in the past on the show, and listeners who are familiar with the, the broader um, oeuvre of With a Terrible Fate and our written articles online probably know that this comes up a decent amount, just because what we do is analyze the storytelling of video games, right, and how we analyze those stories and interpret them is oftentimes uh, very different from what you might imagine an author intended by those stories because the general approach that a lot of analysts on the site take, uh, myself being one example, right, is just looking at the storytelling of a video game as a text unto itself, right? And, you know, proceeding from the understanding that we can interpret and have an understanding of that text, regardless of what the real flesh and blood developers were trying to do with that text, right? And that can be really hard, um, if you're just, you know, thinking about the interpretations of stories for the first time, right? Because I, I think it's a very natural intuition to think like, well, here's the plot of the game. It's just whatever literally happens. And then if we're trying to interpret it, we're really just thinking about what the creators were trying to say with it. And there's no middle ground or there are no other options, right? Well, I'm here to tell you there is such a middle ground, right? And as I was thinking about glitches in preparation for this episode, it was really uh, kind of a surprising experience to me because glitches ended up being a really interesting way for thinking about authorial intention uh, that I wasn't expecting. Right. And, and the thought here is something like this. We've talked about glitches in terms of the very like typical understanding of things like funny walks or being able to kill bosses in ways that weren't intended. Right. But when you actually boil down glitches to the more theoretical considerations that we've been talking about, it's really hard to describe them in any way that is just different than 
content in a story or a video game that the developers did not intend, right? And when you describe them in that way, it seems like a whole lot of things in video games and other media that we don't think of as glitchy can actually be thought of as glitches, right? If, it, if it's just an element of the game that we're using or interpreting in a way that the author did not intend, right? Uh, and you can think about it with some of the other examples from other media that, that I mentioned, right? Like, you know, if, if you've ever read or been assigned and then not read James Joyce's Ulysses, right? I mean, oh my goodness, dude, that is like, stream of consciousness, craziness, like it's hard to understand what is literally being expressed by the narrative at any given moment. And most of the texts that you'll find in the modern world are actually heavily annotated with errata by editors because it's really hard to actually <laughs> tell whether there are typos or editorial confusions at any given point just because it's so hard to understand what the core narrative is in the first place. And if you create a film if you, if, or if you watch a film, um, you also have this idea of shared authorship where you it's a tough question to ask, you know, what was the deliberate intention of that yeah. author and where maybe the director might have given instructions, but a character just kept playing in a different, uh, sorry, an actor kept playing in a different direction or added a line that later on became famous and is considered to be very, like, particularly powerful. So this is also a form of sometimes unintentioned, unintentional uh, aspects in, in authorship there. This is a, a total tangent, Stefan, but since I have you, my my one German friend on the podcast, <laughs> have you ever read Schachnovella by Stefan Zweig? Oh, yes, yes, by Stefan Zweig. He's like uh, my name companion, uh, Stefan Zweig. A, a beautiful, small novel about a person who... Um, who plays chess in his head if, while he's, I think, a prisoner of war, if I recall correctly. That's right, and he's just, that's right. He doesn't really have much input, much stimulus from the outside, so he just keeps playing chess in his head, and uh, Stefan Zweig push, pushes it to the extreme. I mentioned that to me because that, in terms of my aesthetic taste, is, is kind of like what I would hope something like Ulysses would be, right? Because it's such a beautiful representation of the the inner dynamics of the mind, in my view, something like that, thinking of it as, as dividing one's mind and playing a chess game with oneself. But you can understand what's going on in the story, not not to dig against <laughs> Joyce, who is obviously brilliant, but also, oh man, Shock Novella was not a pain to read, <laughs> as some other texts were. Yeah. And it's short. It's short. A very recommendable read. Yeah, and it's short. That, that's another great thing. It's a short read. Uh, it's a novella as opposed to a novel. Um, but so I, I think, you know, to go back to the point of, of glitches and authorial intention, right? And, and I promise we will get to the question of narrative excuses, which is what you asked about, Stefan. But it's, it's just so interesting to me to think about glitches as not necessarily mere aberrations in the code, right? But exactly as you said, in the case of something like a film or a stage production, right? Elements of the story that were meant to be there by the literal author, but represent the story in some way that is other than what the author intended, right? Um, a toy example, right, is, uh, you know, because we're a publication that is named in homage to Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, right? If you think about what, um, Edgy Onuma might have literally meant to say with the game, right? Uh, you know, we don't need to go into like his actual interviews he's had about the game, but you might imagine as a toy example that it's meant to be, you know, a story about classical heroism and everything that Link typically does in Zelda games. Um, 
if you're familiar with my work on Majora's Mask, you know that a, a big part of what I think is really interesting about that game is it seems like you're trying to be a hero, but it is literally impossible for Link to do so. It is deeply nihilistic in terms of its its structure of what it is to be good or evil, right? And, and there are a litany of things you could point to in the game to that point, but things like how it uses um, temporal loops, like Groundhog Day um, reiterations of the same three-day cycle, uh, things like the fierce deity mask, which Link dons in the end of the game. These are things that point towards an understanding of the game that might be very different than what was literally intended, right? I happen to think if you look at, again, just the text of the game or the game as a text, not just the actual words that are presented in speech bubbles or anything like this, uh, it, it is a well-supported interpretation of that game that allows you to see it in a really interesting way. But if you're thinking about glitches as things other than what was literally intended by the game, <laughs> this is really interesting, right? Because things like the Fierce 80s mask were very clearly supposed to be in the game. It's not something like, you know, the, the demon of hatred walking off a cliff and accidentally killing himself, right? But... There are elements of the game that lead to an interpretation and understanding of the game that's different than what the developer intended, right? And so suddenly a lot more of what we think of as regular storytelling ends up being kind of glitchy storytelling in this interesting way, you know? Yep, I understand, but I wonder whether this qualifies as a glitch. I mean, definitely not in the conventional sense of the term, right? Because um, a glitch would have to be some kind of, some kind of artifact uh, that uh, points to the artificiality of that story, right? And in this case, I would say it's more, it seems to me more like a, an alternative interpretation, a subversive mm -hmm. reading or subversive play um, of the game that's not necessarily glitchy. So I, I think that's interesting, and I take the point. Um, what I would challenge in response to that is when you think about an artifact that points to the the created nature of the work, right? I, I believe that's what you said as, as a formation of glitches, right? Point taken, but also wouldn't you think that elements of the game that make you question the way in which it was created or the point that it was made to express, right? If these artifacts are pointing you to think about that and are challenging what you thought might have been intended by the game, is that not the same kind of thing that's going on? Right. Are you gearing towards an understanding of glitches that expands beyond the idea of uh, technological um, technological glitches the, that point to the apparatus of the video game to a direction of, let's say, uh, like somewhat of a, a narrative glitch? Is that what, what you mean, what you're gearing towards? I think so. And I, I don't want to say I'm gearing towards it in the sense that I think this is how we ought to think about glitches or that this is some uniquely compelling way of understanding them. Um, I think I'm gearing towards it in the sense that the more I was thinking about glitches and how we identify them, the more I think it's really hard to draw a hard conceptual distinction between what we typical think of, excuse me, what we typically think of as um, you know, technological failures or blips or the, the colloquial glitches and things that are, uh, as you say, narrative glitches, right? Things that were intended to be there, but evoke unintended interpretations of the narrative, right? And I, I think that's interesting. I also think it's interesting because, um, you know, a, as we think about some of these glitches that are not game breaking, things like the demon of hatred, uh, this is really what put me down this path of analysis, because 
I think those glitches are really interesting in the sense that uh, even though they are these colloquial glitches that were clearly not part of the game's design, not only do they not break the game, but they are also amenable to interpretation within the game. So it's not the kind of thing that you just automatically write off or say like, well, that has no merit. You see something like the demon of hatred kill itself after Wolf and Sekiro gets on top of this tower, right? And I feel like if you're stopping to analyze the game at all and think about what it's saying, this naturally raises some really interesting questions. Like in in the world of Sekiro, right? Like, wow, this sculptor was kind of an, an augur of what Wolf could become. He was overcome by his hatred. And then merely by facing Sekiro, um, he decides to kill himself, right? What does that say about the avatar? Is it like you've developed so much hatred within yourself over the course of this game without realizing it, that even a literal demon of hatred is afraid to face you? And even though those are interpretations that are based off of this content in the game that is glitchy, it seems as if, at least in principle, we can interpret what we see as the text or the content of the game that's presented to us in this way and come up with a coherent interpretation of what's happening, right? And so yeah, that yeah. leads one naturally to think like, well, if this normal glitch can be interpreted in this way and have narrative meaning, what about these other narrative interpretations that might not be licensed by the literal author but are supported by the content of the work that was supposed to be there in the first place? Yeah, I, I do think you're very much right there. I think it the, the demon of hatred is so such a beautiful example because it characterizes the uh, the the demon of hatred and the, the character it also characterizes the player it also uh, sorry the avatar Sekiro but it also has a ludic implication in that Dan in the example as you narrated it before uh, felt this kind of lack in achievement as that the game normally wants you to experience mm -hmm. so he actually mm -hmm. went back as if like to say I have to earn that reward that I have uh, that I have accidentally already received. So I think it actually has a lot of permeating meanings, even though it's just such an like an an accidental thing that can it can turn into something bigger. But in this case, let's assume it's just an accident that's not uh, that was not anticipated. Mm -hmm. It definitely has meaning, and it opens up a whole range of interesting interpretations. And totally, I would say, totally legit interpretations that must not uh, that must not take the back seat against like oh yeah but that's not what the <laughs> that's not what the author meant obviously um yeah still it's a really interesting experience no you're totally right and i do want to get to the concept of narrative excuses but on that score of legitimate interpretations right um i think for listeners who might still be resistant to that idea. I want to just offer my favorite example from more of literary theory that shows why conceptually we have to be able to interpret texts and stories in ways that are different than what the literal author interpreted um, or intended by those texts, right? Uh, and I want to shout out one of my favorite boys in literary theory, uh, the late, great Wayne C. Booth. Uh, if you have not read his rhetoric of fiction and you're interested in literary analysis, I really, really encourage you to read it, not just because it's a great analytical text in terms of what fiction is and how we engage with it, but also because um, Booth is one of those great literary theorists who, in my view, is also just a pleasure to read. His prose is, is really easily digestible, and he, he talks through a lot of really fun examples um, in storytelling in the course of analyzing these works, right? Um, but he has this concept of the distinction between 
the literal author of a text, so the actual flesh and blood person who created it, right? So, you know, the actual person, Hidetaka Miyazaki, for example, who created works like Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, right? And something that he calls the implied author, right? Which is not a literal person, but rather is this concept of an author that we can infer from a text when we're asking ourselves basically the question, okay, what kind of person would have created this text and what might they have been trying to say by virtue of creating this text and sharing it with me, right? And now you might think in the first place that asking that question is just asking, well, what did this literal person mean by this text? But Booth actually uses the concept of irony uh, and parody to show why it has to be the case that those two entities, the literal author and implied author, are conceptually distinct, Right. Uh, and the example that he uses is kind of an old world one. We can think of more modern ones, but I love it because it's just such a clear example. So in 1702, literally centuries ago, there were these two opposing political parties, the Tories and the Whigs. Um, and there was uh, an author on the uh, Whig side, Daniel Defoe, who wrote this really interesting pamphlet called The Shortest Way with the Dissenters, who uh, was basically by virtue of this pamphlet trying to um, make a point against his opposing political party, the Tories, by parodying the views of the extremists within this party, right? So you might imagine uh, in, in modern parlance, right, like Democrats in the U.S. like writing some pamphlet parodying like extreme Republican views, right? But the interesting thing about this was that his parody was so thoroughgoing that people from the opposite political party and indeed his own political party actually thought that it was the genuine work of a Tory extremist, right? Which is kind of funny and clearly didn't get his point across, right? And that didn't get his point across is exactly what Booth is talking about when he talks about this implied author, right? Because parody shows oftentimes uh, when you are like too good at being ironic, someone who's interpreting the text can be doing all of the right interpretive work, but infer an author who has indeed the exact opposite views from the literal author, right? Now, is that always going to be the true? Of course not. Not all texts are ironic in that way, but it does show that the conceptual apparatus for analyzing a text and the intentions of its author independently from what the literal author meant is a valid mode of interpretation, right? And, and I think, frankly, as you were alluding to before, Stefan, and as I think Dan was talking about just last week, it's oftentimes where a lot of the most interesting interpretation can happen. Because if you're just thinking about what the literal author means by a text, right, well, especially in the age of video games where most of those authors are living, all of the interpretive work you can do there really is just asking the creator, hey, what did you mean by this? And then they tell you, and that's the end of the story, right? But... So many works are amenable to such interesting interpretations that really allow you to understand both the work itself and, you know, the themes that it's considering in new ways, whether or not the literal author intended it. So why would you not engage with that enterprise, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with that. But is that I, I didn't get the point where narrative excuses come in here because Ah, that's, that's my what friend, were, that's, that's because we that's haven't what, yet gotten to that's that. That's what you were gearing towards. And I was, yes, I was thinking, I was. like, <laughs> what does that got to do with narrative excuses? I get the, I get the groundwork, but, but how do glitches work in the context of narrative excuses? And what are narrative excuses? Good, good. So we do have the groundwork here, and now we can finally talk about narrative excuses, <laughs> right? Now that we have this idea of authorial intention and how glitches do and don't relate to that, right? 
I think for all that I've said about glitches being the kinds of things that are very similar to just regular means of interpreting a text and perhaps being able to create more narrative value than we might expect, I think there's something, I won't say dangerous, but there's a challenge presented here in terms of taking that too seriously because at face value, when we started this conversation, right, glitches were something that we took to be a problem with a video game, right? Even if there are examples where, you know, glitches like the Demon of Hatred can create narrative value, the intuition is there was something that was intended by the video game and then something has gone wrong, right? And if we're interpreting glitches as something that is, um, you know, meaningful to the game's narrative and something that can create meaning like the glitch of the Demon of Hatred, there's the sense that I feel at least, and, and tell me if you share this intuition, Stefan, that that kind of interpretation can almost be an excuse for something that has gone wrong in the storytelling, right? Like if a glitch is something that is not supposed to be there uh, and that, you know, wasn't intended and seems kind of different than the rest of the story content, then to just create an interpretation that makes that glitch something meaningful in the story, it seems like we're excusing something that has gone wrong in the story, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I get I get what you mean. And I think it might be a possibility. It is definitely a possibility for uh, creators of such video games to then own the glitch basically make the glitch yeah. part of your own of your of your canon if you will or of your own ways of telling a story i think that's definitely a possibility and some video games do that quite effectively by integrating uh, some form of glitch aesthetics yeah i and i think you know prior to glitch aesthetics right thinking about <laughs> games that are maybe not using glitch aesthetics but pointing to glitch aesthetics as an excuse for just proper glitches, right? Not to be piling onto Ubisoft, but Assassin's Creed is a really good example of this, <laughs> yeah. right? Because, you know, you, you've talked about some of the glitches in Assassin's Creed. There are other famous ones, like uh, I know you mentioned in your notes for this episode, like the glitches where some of the NPCs like literally didn't have faces, right? <laughs> but there, it, that seems like so obviously a technological shortcoming. And yet, this is exactly what I mean in terms of narrative excuses, because in Assassin's Creed, there's this whole narrative apparatus of the animus, right? Where your character is going into this technological kind of like full VR experience in order to engage with the memories of his ancestors, right? And so if within the context of the narrative, your character is inside of this technological ecosystem of the animus, and then suddenly, lo and behold, some of the NPCs don't have faces, this is like, to me, a canonical example of the narrative excuse because Ubisoft or the creators or the people playing in the games could just say, oh, well, you know, uh, those glitches are just happening because the animus is glitchy, right? And then they can even take it a step further to kind of, you know, bolster the parody of this example that I think is actually deeply meaningful and, and worrisome to me. They can say like, well, you know, the animus is glitchy and that's not just an excuse because that actually points to this theme of how, you know, when we're trying to access history and access the past, we can never do it in a high fidelity way, right? Because it's the past and we only have this 
this kind of glitchy access to it, right? And suddenly you're starting to build what sounds like, at least at face value, a compelling theory out of something that just so transparently is a flaw in the game, right? Like, you're not going to seriously tell me that faceless NPCs are a good thing for the game, <laughs> but you start talking about it and analyzing it, and then suddenly it sounds that way, right? Yeah, but I find it so sad that Ubisoft hasn't fully owned that glitch. That was in Assassin's Creed Unity, where the characters would appear without faces, just eyes and a particularly creepy set of teeth hovering um, in some like some hair covered by some hair <laughs> and i think those glitches were fantastic they 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 became a meme because they were so funny and honestly if i were if i had been working at ubisoft then i would have suggested that we put out a specific uh, a specific box that has these faceless NPCs <laughs> as box art on them. And it's like this these would have like limited edition and they cost a bit more or something. People would have people would have purchased them right away at the time. That would have been a fantastic oh marketing opportunity. I feel like we need to shut off the podcast right now because I'm worried we'll start giving Ubisoft ideas. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to see a world where that's a limited edition like premium product. Oh my God. But I think, you know, to to get a little more broad about this for a moment, right? I think what's interesting to me about this, and it goes back to the idea of linking glitches with what we do in interpreting narrative all the time, at least this is what I do, and tell me if this is something that you go through too, Stefan. There's this weird kind of feedback loop and analysis where I'm playing a video game or even watching a show or reading a book, and I see something that looks like a flaw, and then I ask myself, well, okay, what if it's not a flaw? What if that's in one way or another actually the point of a narrative and I just haven't arrived at understanding that point yet? And it's hard because even with that kind of you know silly Assassin's Creed example, that kind of philosophy of understanding what other people might write off as a flaw to be an interesting puzzle that points to more meaning in a narrative is a lot of what we do on With a Terrible Fate, right? So this is, this is a challenge that I take seriously, right? And it's kind of worrisome to me to look at something like a glitch in Assassin's Creed or how like frustrated a lot of people are by like the linearity of Final Fantasy 13, right? And then say, oh, well, maybe that frustrating aspect of it is actually the point, right? Maybe in Assassin's Creed, it's about the glitchiness of history. Maybe in Final Fantasy 13, it's about, you know, being unable to escape the singular fate that you're assigned, uh, which I think is actually an interesting argument. But it does seem like you're giving the author an out when you're starting from this point of things that clearly were not intended and seemed like a shortcoming of the story in the first place, right? And so that worries me. I think for, for my own part, the way that I would consider uh, like a, a valid means of getting out of this puzzle of, uh, you know, these narrative excuses is we don't have to get rid of the distinction between the literal author and the implied author, which might seem tempting, but Booth has shown us, and I think we have plenty of reason to believe that that's not really a, a valid possibility. But instead, what we can do is when we're weighing different interpretations that are licensed by a text, right, I think that if a kind of glitchy interpretation or a narrative excuse comes from looking at just a specific element of the text, like a certain glitch or, you know, a certain character or some other like localized aspect of the text. And if that interpretation contradicts 
some other interpretation that's available to us that seems more coherent or generally compelling, right? I think without totally nullifying that narrative excuse, we can reduce the weight of it, right? We can say, well, you know, that's one way to interpret the text, but have you noticed that that makes implausible this other way of looking at it that seems to be more coherent across the text as a global work, right? So that to me has been the best out I've been able to find so far. I, I would agree. It needs, I mean, the consistency is key then, and the question of whether there are any kind of markers that would indicate that this glitch is in some way meaningfully integrated. I do actually remember that, I mean, obviously in Assassin's Creed games, that is partially the case where you reach the the borders of the world and they couldn't obviously create even more of it so they just give you these glitchy symbols there and it says like hey you're going to be <laughs> desynchronized that's obviously part of it and everyone understands that that's not really a glitch and i even noticed just as a last tiny anecdote that i have actually used glitch aesthetics myself um i mean obviously in you know in music in anyway because actually a lot of modern music is made of what would previously be considered to be a glitch such as a distorted guitar where it's like oh what is bro why is the guitar uh, broken that's but, a great point yeah 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 but even i remember i wrote a short story a couple of years ago and it was uh, about a man who suffers from a, a tumor in his head and at the beginning of the story he mentions that the tumor is pressing on his language center and throughout the story i implemented an increasing amount of grammat grammatical errors to make it make it feel like his language center is falling apart while you're reading the story and i've been like it was not it was not obvious enough because i've often heard that yes but you should really correct those grammatical errors <laughs> but they were, oh, no. they were i thought it was a really smart idea <laughs> <laughs> See, th this is a great example, Stefan. You are giving a biographical account of the difference between the literal author and the implied author, and you are yes. sadly on the wrong side of it this time. <laughs> and the narrative excuse. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Dear listeners out there, we would like to know what your favorite or most memorable glitches are, and of course, how they changed your perception, how your interpretation of a video game please let us know in the comments you can obviously go to with a terrible fate and leave us a comment um, but for now we have to jump ahead because wow we're an hour in already it's going to be quite a long show um, and we got some small things still in our tiny side quest section my side quest is actually a game i've been playing over the last well Three weeks, ever since I've abandoned Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I started playing Disco Elysium because I heard so many good things about it. And I can now, after having finished it just this morning, I can confirm that it is absolutely amazing. It's published and developed by Zaum, Z-A-U-M, in 2019, and I played it on PS5. I played the final cut edition with all characters voiced, um, which is a fantastic aspect because there is a lot of reading there's a lot of dialogue disco elysium is hard to describe but it basically is a narratively focused rpg you don't have any combat in any classical video gamey sense there's a lot of reading dialogue choices that you make and by virtue of them you move through a story that revolves around a mysterious murder that occurred you have this neo-noir premise of you being this um, 
worn down police officer you partied so hard that you lost your complete memory and you wake up on the floor in a cheap motel room a bottle still rolling over the floor an empty bottle you've thrashed your hotel room and uh, a corpse is dangling in the backyard from a tree and your task is now to find out who killed that man hanging in the tree this slowly rotting corpse and it is absolutely fascinating so intriguing a world brimming with interesting characters it is set in the district of martinez in the town of revachol so it's like uh you could say it's a bit it's not necessarily dystopia but it goes in the direction of one it ties into a lot of political themes there's uh, the suspicion at least that the workers union who are currently on strike have killed that person in the backyard because he was a mercenary hired by the company wild pines the capitalists this is a an ambiguity that pervades the entire game capitalism communism uh, moralism right there's there are a lot of isms in there i mean and if you're interested in like uh, diving into these political Uh, facets in these political debates, I would even say, then um, Disco Elysium is a, a perfect, a perfect tool to play with. I have seen, obviously, I've seen you playing Disco Elysium because we're friends on the PlayStation Network, and I love to lurk and see what my friends are playing. Um, but I've also seen it yeah. advertised on the PlayStation Store, uh, and I think especially by virtue of everything you've just said, I'm really curious if you have any thoughts on the name, because it's such a gripping and unusual name. Why do you think uh, it has the name that it does, given its story? That is never quite clarified. There is the name Disco Elysium that can appear, But I think it mm. is up to you whether it does or not, because the the it, it's a little bit it's a little bit difficult to explain. But there's no real explanation for why it's called Disco Elysium. You can make sense of it by saying that. I mean, first of all, you're a cop. You love disco music. Okay, <laughs> this is like <laughs> one of the. I think in one of the first lines, when before you wake up, you have the ancient reptilian brain speaking to you, mm. and it says something like. Um, in the, it describes the process of waking up as the song of death is sweet and endless. But what is this? Somewhere in the sore, bloated man meat around you, a sensation. The limbed and headed machine of pain and undignified suffering is firing up again. It wants to walk the desert, hurting, longing, Dancing to disco music. Wow. What a quote. What a way to start the game. <laughs> Honestly, that is the Disco Elysium has one of the most memorable lines I've ever read in any video game. And generally, I would even go further. I would say that it is one of the best written pieces of artistic work I've ever got to experience. So it's way up there. It's way up there. You meet, for example, you meet a, a war veteran, René Arnaud, and you get a brief description of the character. The voice in your head says, this is a man with a lot of past, little hmm. present, and almost no future. Ah, that is just delicious. These, these lines, man, I can't even, I can't even convey how, how the game blew me away time and time again, amazing me with its absolutely 
spot on writing. It's so interesting to me that you talk about how the the framing of the game and that introductory quote uh, and the notion of disco Elysium, perhaps referring to um, your avatar's love of disco music, lots of reference in there to the idea of music. And yet what seems to you to be the most memorable aspect of the game is the writing uh, and the written text as opposed to something like the soundtrack. Do you think that was deliberate? Yeah, it might be. I think it has a certain intriguing characteristic to be so in love with disco music as your protagonist is. It is kind of, it indicates that your the character you're playing is, he fell out of his time. He's an outsider. He's old. He's, he's an alcoholic. He takes drugs. You can determine to which degree he should take drugs or not because it's very much up to mm. you whether you do that or not. But the game doesn't super discourage you from doing it. It doesn't judge you in that sense. And it's just also so interestingly disjunct that you have this police officer who's in love with disco mm. music yeah you know <laughs> he loves disco music and uh, there's even a sequence where you can get down on the dance floor <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack is cool not something that super sticks to my head and in, into my head obviously in my mind um but the real uh the real uh, unique selling point of the game, I would say, is its fantastic writing and the way in which the the voices in your head work. Because you basically have uh, several different attributes, character attributes. It's very much like a like a pen and paper mm-hmm. role playing game in that sense, because you can allocate points to certain attributes. The interesting thing is these attributes also speak to you. They influence how you perceive conversations. For example, you got the attribute encyclopedia if you have a high value in encyclopedia then the voice of encyclopedia will give you more information on aspects of the world when you encounter them some a character will mention a historical event because there's a lot of law going on there and encyclopedia will tell you what that actually means so you can keep up with the conversation and that also means that every time you play and you allocate your skill points differently you will have a different experience. I love games that do that. I feel like um, exactly as you point to in terms of written role-playing games, that's a little bit of a lost art. Uh, as, as kitschy as it is, uh, the game Call of Cthulhu does that too, uh, and, and I really love it in terms of assigning points and being able to perceive the world differently. So many games, I think, just think about skill points as uh, different combat specs, right? So to have these games that allow you to have a more comprehensive mode of engagement with the world that differs on the those skill points is, is really cool. I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned all the <laughs> isms in the game, right? And how it's, it's wrestling with so many of these grand and pertinent concepts uh, that, that apply equally to our real life, right? And to kick back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of messages being expressed by artworks, whether by literal or implied authors, do you find that this is the kind of game that merely offers these concepts for contemplation or that has a thesis that it's defending with regard to those concepts? It offers various different theses and you can choose which one to explore in more depth because you can very much choose by virtue of what you say in conversations of whether you side with common communists. You can, you can, you can properly adopt uh, race theory you know advanced race theory is something you can adopt and there are conversations where you encounter where you try you can try to wiggle out of it but i at least hit a point where the the line occurred uh, in the dialogue box 
say one of these fascist or communist things or fuck off. Wow. And you have to, you have to, you have, you don't necessarily have to pick sides. You can try to remain neutral, but let's just say the game nudges you to be opinionated, to mm. put your opinion. It, it, yeah, maybe while not necessarily making a statement about um, a one-sided perspective, it definitely nudges you to take a stance, to be opinionated and to pick sides, yeah. So rather than defending a thesis itself, it encourages the player to pick and defend a thesis. Or perhaps said a different way, the thesis that it depends is that, excuse me, the thesis it defends is that you ought to have a strong opinion about these things one way or the other. At least you have to engage with it, yeah. And you can mm, be a completely mm. nihilistic cop as well who doesn't care about any of these things. And you just will have to bear the consequences just like with any other perspective that you take on. If you side with the communists, it, you'll struggle if you deal with people who are more on the side of the so-called moral intern, which is the moral international uh, uh, government, <laughs> like a foreign ruling party. And um, it definitely offers an intriguing uh, perspective. It goes very much into depth much more into depth than I can ever summarize right here, but I think if it it also has that as an affordance. Disco Elysium can be quite tedious if you either don't have the patience to sit down for one hour of dialogue with just one character, mm. or if you're not interested in conceptual abstractions, in political theory, critical theory, such things. I mean, you can play a character who's pretty buffed and who just punches everyone <laughs> but you will have to engage with at least the question of who do you punch and why <laughs> <laughs> well put well i'll tell you as someone who has not played the game yet you have made me want to uh and, and i think uh, not dissimilar to what i want to talk about in my side quest uh it's it's a great example of a game that is almost going the opposite way from what I think is a, a grand trend in video games toward verisimilitude, right? And instead being more representational and almost literary in the way that it is presenting its world uh, to the gamer. So that's that's very cool. Yeah. I like literary. that it's doing that. Literary yeah. is a very good adjective for it. It's a very literary game and a very interesting, very intellectually challenging game. What's your side quest, Aaron? So my side quest is a little reflection. Um, I, as much as I love and have talked a lot about the Final Fantasy games that I have played, I will willingly admit uh, in the company of you and, and our podcast listeners, at least, that I haven't played all the Final Fantasies. Uh, and I'm, I'm finally getting around to playing Final Fantasy IX for the first time. Oh, mm. Yes, uh, and it's been such a joy so far. I've only played a few hours, but what's been really refreshing to me about it is, uh, as I said, something that's actually pretty similar to what you're talking about with Disco Elysium, right? Which is that... Uh, Nowadays, I at least have this feeling that as graphical processing gets more sophisticated and we can represent characters as more realistic, uh, there is at least a band of gamers and game developers who think that making more sophisticated games is equivalent to making it seem more realistic in terms of the characters being better graphically defined and, and sounding more like real people, which is kind of a really funny and, and ironic thing, given that so many of these games are very fantasy driven <laughs> and, and grounded in things that are not representative of the real world. Uh, 
but you know, you can see that even in something like the remake of Final Fantasy VII, which you know, listeners probably know I, I love for so many reasons, and is I think is really innovative in its narrative, but also a big focus of that game in terms of how people have talked about it is the graphical updates and making characters like Cloud feel like real people rather than the polygon gestures of people that you see in the original Final Fantasy VII, right? And so, to me, it's been just so refreshing to go back to Final Fantasy IX and experience it for the first time. I think it's a really interesting moment in gaming history that I've been able to chew on a bit because, you know, people familiar with the Final Fantasy series will know that the next game after that, Final Fantasy X, uh, was a landmark Final Fantasy game in so many ways, but one of the key ones in terms of the technological development is it was the first one that was voiced, right? It was the first time you had voice actors, and even though the graphics were not as good as graphics are nowadays, that made the characters feel much more like people or actors or you know genuine representations with which you could engage, right? And so yeah, there was Final a leap Fas- from PlayStation One to PlayStation Two, from Final Fantasy Nine to Final yeah. Fantasy Ten, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so in Final Fantasy IX, you have this really interesting to me, like interstitial mode of storytelling where there are a lot of cutscenes, which are kind of, you know, rendered in computer generated graphics that are nowhere near the quality of what you have today, but the characters aren't voiced. And so it, it feels like this game that's straddling these two moments in gaming history. And put on top of that, right, again, I'm only a few hours into it, but it seems very self-consciously meditating on the notion of performative art, right? It starts out and you're this band of thieves who are staging a kidnapping by putting on a play, right? This, yeah. this kind of fake play with pretense. And then Princess Garnet joins your party and you have to name her and create this alternative identity for her so that she's not identified on your voyage, right? And then as you're going through the world, um, contrary to this trend, as you mentioned, Stefan, in trying to remove user interfaces and make everything feel more quote unquote immersive, right? Instead in Final Fantasy IX, this big icon will pop up on the screen saying, oh, there's an active time event. Something else in the world is happening at the same time as this. (laughs) And you can jump to it, right? Kind of like you would in a play, certainly not like you can in real life, right? And so to have this weird experience that is is very... um, I guess literary to use that same word, right? Like it plays with so many dimensions of artistry that I feel like are now when we see them in games like Disco Elysium, remnants of gaming's past because we're focused so much on verisimilitude. So it's it's been refreshing in that way. Uh, and it's refreshing, frankly, to also hear from you about games like Disco Elysium that are carrying that torch onward in modern gaming. Um, I'm, I'm glad that's something that game storytellers are still thinking about because while graphics can be great and I you know love the processing power of the PS5, to me at least, those are some of the least interesting aspects of video game storytelling and, and things like what you talked about in Disco Elysium and what will hopefully come to fruition in Final Fantasy IX are, are just so much more rich and rife with interpretive possibilities. Which version of Final Fantasy IX are you playing and what, which platform are you playing it on? I am playing the PlayStation Network version, which I'm sure is whichever one has been updated to the extent that the game has has been updated. Um, I got it on sale last year in one of my uh, buying sprees, I think probably around Black Friday or whatever. So it's been sitting on my hard drive forever with a lot of other games I want to get around to. And now I'm playing it on the PS5. It's actually it's really interesting um, that you mentioned that because 
I bounced from Final Fantasy IX to starting Returnal um, last night, which you know is also on the PS5, and just transitioning from that kind of old school <laughs> game being played on the PS5 to Returnal with all of its you know dynamic rumble features from the new controller and things like that is like oh my god, what a technology jump! But also like even with all of that new technology, I got to tell you, Returnal is going to have to pull out some really great narrative stops in order to rise to you know the the quality that is something much older, like a classic Final Fantasy game. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And dear listeners out there, you can also look forward to our conversation on Returnal, which will definitely be coming somewhere down the line. We've received a code from Sony and we're going to get into it. For now, we'd like to thank you so very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash withaterriblefate. You can obviously visit withaterriblefate.com to find all of our episodes, all of the written work on With a Terrible Fate, everything really. Also, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, to follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, or send us an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com with your thoughts and questions. And we'll talk again next week.